Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called The Trembling Yes, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December 21st, 2014, the fourth Sunday of Advent. I was seven when I graduated from the ranks of lambs and donkeys to play Mary in my church Christmas pageant. I remember feeling quite grown up the first time I donned my costume, a light blue gown and white headscarf. I remember practicing my lines for days beforehand. Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. I remember laughing when Gabriel, finding his cardboard wings irksome, tore them clean off his shoulders during dress rehearsal. For all the chaos of those childhood performances, there was something straightforward to me back then about Mary. Kneeling on stage with my head demurely covered and my eyes glued on Gabriel's glittery halo, I didn't think much about what the Annunciation must have cost her. Her decision to say yes to God seemed unremarkable to me, her obedience easy. How times have changed. At this stage in my faith journey, nothing about Mary feels straightforward or easy. Despite my familiarity with her story, the mother of Jesus strikes me as a woman shrouded in mystery, a woman whose yes raises as many questions as it answers. Part of the problem is that we've buried her under so many layers of theology, piety, and politics, she's nearly impossible to excavate. Some of us pray to her. Others ignore her on principle. Some call her a victim of divine coercion. Others, Theotokos, the mother of God. For some, she represents a troubling model of pious femininity, ever sinless, ever virgin, ever mother. For still others, she is child prophet extraordinaire, a young girl who fearlessly announced the arrival of God's kingdom to earth. Would the real Mary please stand up? I wish she would, because I have so many questions to ask her. When did you tell your parents you were pregnant? Did you tell Joseph yourself, or did the gossip mongers of Nazareth take care of that for you? Did anyone in the village believe your story? After Gabriel departed, did you doubt his visitation, question your sanity, fear for your life? The story of the Annunciation is one of the most familiar ones in the New Testament. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. From this mind-boggling introduction, an even more mind-boggling and rapid-fire narrative follows. The angel greets Mary, calling her God's favored one. He describes a divine plan for a miraculous conception. Mary expresses doubt. Gabriel explains God's plan in greater detail. Mary consents and the angel departs. At least half of what's maddening about the story is its brevity. We know that Mary was much perplexed by Gabriel's words and that she pondered his greeting. We know from her question, how can this be since I am a virgin, that she recognized the bizarre nature of the angel's announcement. And we know from her last words to the angel that she agreed to God's plan. But the gospel writer leaves a great deal out. This Advent, my attention is particularly drawn to three gaps in the Annunciation narrative. The first is the gap between Gabriel's title for Mary, favored one, and the task he assigns her. Tradition tells us that Mary was probably 13 or 14 years old when the angel appeared to her. We know that in first century Jewish culture, a girl who became pregnant out of wedlock faced grave danger. At the very least, she became an object of widespread scorn. At the worst, as in contemporary cultures which practice honor killings, she risked being stoned to death by the very villagers who raised her. To say yes in this instance was to give herself over to scandal and ostracism. It was to put everything, her reputation, her marriage, her very life, on the line. 
And this is the special honor God bestowed on his favored one? This gap of the Annunciation story warns me that God's favor is not the anodyne thing I'd like to believe it is. It's not the God of the New Testament who equates divine favor with wealth, health, comfort, or ease. That's just me getting it wrong. Mary's favored status led her straight from scandal to danger to the trauma of her son's crucifixion. God's call required her to be profoundly countercultural, to trust an inner vision that flew in the face of everything her community expected of her. As the years passed and her son's enemies multiplied, Mary's yes demanded a degree of courage that makes me tremble as a mother. Let's not deceive ourselves. It is no benign thing to be favored of God. The second gap in the story lies between Mary's question, how can this be, and her consent, let it be with me according to your word. In a beautiful ekphrastic meditation inspired by Sandro Botticelli's painting, The Sistello Annunciation, poet Andrew Hudgens lingers in this very space, giving it a weight and richness I'd never considered before. The angel has already said, be not afraid. He said, the power of the Most High will darken you. Her eyes are downcast and half-closed, and there's a long pause, a pause here of forever, as the angel crowds her. She backs away, her left side pressed against the picture frame. He kneels. He's come in all unearthly innocence to tell her of glory, not knowing, not remembering how terrible it is. And Botticelli gives her eternity to turn, look out the doorway, where on a far hill floats a castle, and halfway across the river toward it jets a bridge, not completed. And neither is the touch, angel to virgin, both her hands held up, both elegant, one raised as if to say, stop, while the other hand, the right one, reaches toward his. And as it does, it parts her blue robe and reveals the concealed red of her inner garment to the red tiles of the floor and the red folds of the angel's robe. But her whole body pulls away. Only her head, already haloed, bows, acquiescing. And though she will, she's not yet said, Behold, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. As Botticelli, in his great pity, lets her refuse, accept, refuse, and think again. The danger in idealizing Mary's consent is that it distorts her humanity and keeps her story at arm's length from ours. For better or for worse, I can't relate to a person who leaps headlong into obedience. I can relate, however, to the one who struggles, to the one whose yes is cautious and ambivalent. I hope Hudgens' eternity did pass between Mary's calling and her consent. I hope the angel indeed waited compassionately for her, for her answer, honoring all that was at stake in her freedom to accept or refuse him. The third gap ends this week's reading. Then the angel departed from her. This is a gap in my life with God that I both recognize and dread. It's a moment when the prayer ends, the vision recedes, the certainty wavers. It's the moment after the yes, the moment when the mountaintop experience fades into memory and life in the valley begins. How different Mary's experience might have been if Gabriel had stuck around to erase her doubts and silence her critics. But no, he departed, leaving the ongoing work of discernment and discipleship to Mary alone. Her yes didn't signal the end of mystery. Mystery had only begun. A popular Christmas song addressed to Mary asks what she knew when she consented to Gabriel's request. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? We have no way of knowing what Mary knew. My guess is that like us, she knew just enough to get started. My guess is that the work of bearing God into the world involved ceaseless discovery and ongoing consent, just as it does today. 
My guess is that each trembling yes Mary whispered into God's heart changed the world, as does ours. For books this week, we review Andrew Meredith's The Removers, a memoir. I read this book when I saw that it's about the same unusual subject as Sinan Antun's novel, The Corpse Washer, the story of a fourth generation, Gahalsichi, a corpse washer and shrouder from a poor Shiite family in Baghdad. Antun's book is Iraqi fiction, whereas Meredith has written an American memoir. But both stories are about sons who follow their fathers into the business of dead bodies. And for both authors, literal death is a metaphor for broader spiritual death that they experience. This is Meredith's first book, and it's characterized by remarkable insight and introspection. Meredith's downward trajectory began when he was 14, and the day that his father was fired from his job as an English professor for sexual harassment. That day, fixed our befores and afters, for the family as it had, as it had been was over. After 11 years of emotional distance and ominous family silence, his father moved out of the house after 28 years of marriage. These were troubled years for Meredith, marked by the hollow gloom of depression, drinking, simmering resentment, and a foreboding sense of failure. He flunked out of three colleges in two years, was broke, living at home and going nowhere fast. So he did what everyone in his dying Philadelphia neighborhood did. He took the job that came my way from someone I knew. That someone was his father, who after getting fired took a job as a remover. For $35 a trip, he picked up dead bodies at apartments, houses, nursing homes, or the hospital morgue, and took them to the funeral home. These stories are dreadful, gruesome, humorous, and poignant. Meredith finally graduated from college after 10 years and four tries. By then, he'd been in the body business for nine years, including a full-time position in a crematorium, where across the years he incinerated thousands of bodies, three hours at 1900 degrees. And that, as you can well imagine, will make a sensitive soul do a lot of thinking. In the end, Meredith's raw honesty moves to grace and maturity about his family, himself, his work, and the bodies entrusted to him. For films this week, we review A Year in Burgundy. Wine snobs might dismiss this 88-minute documentary as a puff piece, but for most of us who enjoy wine and want to learn more, this film was beautiful, fun, and at times funny. The writer-director, David Kennard, organizes the film around each of the four seasons of winemaking in 2011, with seven different vintners. He explores the artistry, science, history, customs, and the ever-elusive terroirs of wine in one of its most famous regions of the world. Burgundy is famous for its two native grapes, the Chardonnay and the Pinot Noir. We go behind the scenes to wine caves built 500 years ago by monks and to super-high-tech processing facilities. The winemakers explain the subtle differences in thousands of microregions and the international pressures to make all wine taste the same. I love this film and watched it on Netflix streaming. It's a good companion to the other wine documentary called Somme. And finally, for poems on this fourth Sunday of Advent, we read John Donne's Annunciation. Salvation to all that will is nigh, that all, which always is all everywhere, which cannot sin, and yet all sins must bear, which cannot die, yet cannot choose but die. Lo, faithful virgin yields himself to lie in prison in thy womb. And though he there can take no sin, nor thou give, yet he will wear, taken from thence flesh, which death's force may try. Ere by the spheres time was created, thou wast in his mind, who is thy son and brother, whom thou conceivest, conceived, Yea, thou art now thy maker's maker, and thy father's mother, 
Thou hast light in dark, and shut in little room, immensity cloistered in dear womb. Thank you for joining us at Journey with Jesus for the fourth Sunday of Advent, December 21st, 2014. I'm Debbie Thomas.